Welcome to the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the birders that pursue them. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Shrobsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously, where to find amazing birds. Head on over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com, and be sure to sign up to our newsletter on the site so you do not miss out on any of the exciting things that are coming up. Be sure to follow this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and please take some time to rate and comment on it. This is episode 42, and today's guest is Mike Buckham, who runs the Better Birding webinars with David Winter. Mike has been birding for more than 40 years, and in this interview, we get to tap into his wealth of knowledge on a whole range of topics. Before we start today's episode, we just want to offer our condolences to Marilyn Harwood, family, and the Wild Books team on the passing of Joe. Joe has hugely impacted my life personally, and I'll miss the long chats talking about birds, bird books, and conservation. We will keep you all in prayer during this difficult season. If you have a story that you'd like to share, you can simply send us a voice note and we'll look to include it on the show. So without further ado, let's hear from Mike. So I want to welcome Mike Buckham to the show. Um, he was the, they hosted the Better Birding webinars and I think a lot of people know you as that person, but it's going to be great today to hear a little bit, a little bit more about you and to hear a little bit more, a little bit more about your story. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. It's been a long time that we've been discussing doing this podcast, and I'm, I'm pleased we're eventually here. Thanks for having me. And just for the sake of listeners, whereabouts are you based? I'm based in, in Claremont, in Cape Town, the mother city. I'm looking out my window, looking at a, a bright blue sunny day with lots of wind. So besides being a birder and a nature lover, who are you? Okay, so um, I am a 47-year-old, um, balding, uh, slightly widening South African male uh, living in the mother city. I'm a qualified chartered accountant, have been for many years, and um, I've worked as a financial director for, for two separate listed companies. And about two years ago, I, I decided to take a slightly um, downplayed approach, um, and I, I'm, I'm working for now a small startup entity, um, an investment management company. But you know, my passion really is, is with birding, um, so that's, that's where I, I get uh, my real thrills. I have... Um, a wife that I've been married to for 22 years. She's incredibly understanding, particularly with my birding exploits. And uh, we have four kids. I've got three boys, um, Thomas, Adam, and Jack. Tommy's the 17-year-old, Adam 15, and Jack 13. And then my daughter's uh, nine years old now. So my other interests are mountain biking and trail running. And, and I'm often very hesitant to admit this as a birder. I'm a keen golfer. But um, as much as golf and, and the environment do sometimes clash, I've had some of my most amazing birding experiences on golf courses. And I think the Leopard Rock Golf Course in, in the Vumba is a classic example of that. There's some incredible birds to be had on those fairways. So before we chatted, you mentioned that you've been birding for more than 40 years. That's incredible. So can you tell us how this birding story started? Yeah, my, my parents were, were definitely not birders and, and certainly not um, in touch with nature, mainly city slickers living in Johannesburg. And I was invited by a, a, a good friend of mine's parents when I was 
five years old to go to the Kruger Park. So we went off to the Kruger Park and um, enjoyed the sights and sounds of the Kruger. And I got back and I said to my parents, we really have to go to the bush. As, as much as a six-year-old can tell his parents that that's the next holiday plan. So my folks booked um, back in the day when we were in isolation, um, apartheid isolation, places like Londolozi were, were actually far more accessible to South Africans. And we booked uh, a few days at Londolozi. Um, which is which is well known for its leopards, but we were fortunate to have a game ranger who who was a very keen birder, and we would sit in the Land Rover and he would be driving and pointing out some birds and and obviously expecting uh, most people not to even care. Um, and I had a a bit of an affinity and I started to to notice what he was pointing out. And if he had pointed out a yellow-billed hornbill, I'd point out the next yellow-billed hornbill and tell him what it was. And so when we finished our drive, he said to me. Um, that I must take his bird book and I must spend my time going through it. And in the afternoon drive, if I can name 20 birds that we see, he'll let me sit on his lap and drive the Land Rover. And so that's what I did. I, I, everyone was uh, having their afternoon snooze during the heat of the day and I paged through the book. And that afternoon game drive, I, I was pointing out the birds um, that I could see. And um, I achieved the objective that he had set me and I, I got to drive the Land Rover. But I think I was more taken with the birds than, than actually driving the Land Rover. So that's pretty much how it started. Got back to Johannesburg straight away and, and bought the, the Ken Newman birds of the Kruger National Park. And that was uh, what accompanied my um, going to bedtime. Uh, I would page through it and, and I knew all the birds in the book long before I'd seen any of them. So a lot of times when we speak to people and you talk about birding, waking up early in the morning and chasing after birds, it almost seems like a really unusual pastime they think look at us like we got a few screws loose so what do you think it is that makes birding so amazing if you were to speak to one of those people that gives us those crazy looks why do you think birding is so amazing yeah i mean i think birding has got a huge range of facets i think it's a spectrum from uh, people who enjoy just looking at birds in their garden all the way through to you know competitive world listers who who chase birds fanatically and and it's it's what they live eat and breathe because it's got so many facets, it, it holds an appeal for everyone. And I think from from our perspective, it's it's the fact that it develops a lot of skills and, and I think a lot of life skills as well. So, you know, if I if I look at my kids and I, I look at some of the skills that I'd like them to, to develop as, as adults, it's things like patience. You need to be patient as a birder. It's uh, attention to detail. I think the best birders are those that uh, apply their mind to how they pick apart um, different tough species. And, and I think the major factor for me is an appreciation for the natural world and, and your surroundings. You know, what I've experienced as a birder and, and why I, I talk to people so passionate, passionately about birding is, you know, over the last 40 years, I've been to some of the most amazing places and, and most bizarre places because I'm a birder. And you talk to someone about Port Nolith. Um, I mean, I'm just using it as an example. So Port Nolith is, is the most far-flung spot in the country. And, and unless you're someone that's... Um, Diving for diamonds, you, you probably would never have heard of it um, unless you wanted to see a Barlow's Lark. It's the only place in South Africa that we can see a Barlow's Lark. And, and I did exactly that. I, I got in a car with my dad um, probably 20 years ago. And I said, uh, we've got to see a Barlow's Lark. And we headed up to Port Nolith. And that was the only reason we went there. And I haven't been back. My boys haven't been with me. But uh, I certainly will go back. So uh, I've really um, explored the country that we live in. Um, as a result of being a bird. And, and when people ask me why I'm a bird, I don't really say it's just to see the birds. It's also to experience the country. Um, there's so many places that as a non-birder, you won't even consider going to. 
So you've spoken about the attraction of birding, but if someone was listening to this and they said, yo, I'd like to try this birding thing, what would be the starting point? What, what would you suggest that they need to start off this journey? Birding's become uh, so much easier um, in, in this technology age. Uh, we have so many resources um, at our fingertips. So Facebook pages, um, social media pages, rarity reporting, um, all the apps that we use. And I know you've, you've reviewed every app that there is. Um, so all of those um, things exist far more easily than they did when I started birding. So we use tape recorders to to call up birds. So you'd have to wind through sort of the entire sort of Gibbons version six of the tape to get from one bird to the next. And it, it, it was tough. Um, it was much harder than, than it is now. We've got lots of listing apps, so it's, it's very easy to list birds. Um, but I think the, the essence of getting started as a birder is to, to get yourself a, a decent pair of binoculars. I think that's a, an absolute must. And get yourself a decent field guide and then sign up to a few of the, the, the rarity reporting stuff. I think rarity reporting is, is great, but you don't need it as a new birder, but it does kind of drive the passion. It shows you, you why birders are so passionate about things and it's interesting. So I think I'd get out into the field as much as possible and, and go to your local patch. So, um, you know, I live five minutes from Kirstenbosch and it's got um, some amazing endemics, orange-breasted sunbird, Cape sugarbird, Cape Franklin, Cape spurfowl. There's so many good birds to see so close to home and, and learn the birds that you have close to home and then start expanding your horizons. And don't try and go to a place that has just a multitude of birds that you've never heard of. Try and focus on, on stuff that is familiar and, and question, what is that bird calling? And try and find the bird calling in the tree and, and, and seek it out and then try and remember that. And you'll be very proud of yourself the next time it calls and you say, well, that's a common chaffinch calling in my garden. So those are the, the tips I'd give. It's just being a little bit more aware of, of the surroundings and, and what birds are around us. I think that's the key to getting started. I think, Mike, a question I've asked a lot of the guests on the show, so this question has come up quite a few times, but I'm always amazed with better birders' ability to see things um, on birds that other birders don't see. And, you know, I'm always interested to know what would be your suggestion in terms of any birder who's listening to grow in their ability to identify birds? I think the quantum leap that, that I needed to make, um, and it was something that came about, I was doing a birding big day probably 15 years ago with, with my good mate Dave Winter. I, I very recently met him, and we decided to do a big birding day together, and we were birding some, some forests in, in the Constantia Greenbelts. And um, I think he was probably 10 birds ahead of me on, on the, the big birding day list because of the fact that he knew the calls, even simple stuff like Cape Canary would fly overhead and he'd say Cape Canary, he'd write it down on the list. And I, I was amazed at, at um, how much he knew that I didn't. I considered myself to be quite an experienced bird even back then. Um, but I suddenly realized how important uh, bird song and, and vocalizations are to, to make a, a, a considered leap from being a birder to being an experienced and a good birder. So I think for, for my journey as a birder, I've spent a lot of energy and a lot of time on, on learning bird calls. And it's not really something that you sit and listen to the tapes. It's really hearing a bird call and seeking it out and actually seeing it making the song. That's the best way to learn it. And I think um, it's so much um, more rewarding to be in a forest patch and be able to point out all the species that you hear. Um, and then you can seek them out to, to see them. So that's the, the one aspect that has changed my birding. I, I, I always describe myself as a very non-technical birder. And there are facets which make other people very good birders. I, I think it's well documented amongst my mates that I'm terrible at buzzard ID. Because it's not something that's ever just 
grabbed me and said, I want to learn more about how to separate common and forest buzzard. I think I can kind of separate um, honey buzzard these days, but it's not something that grabbed me as a technical bird. So I think it's also important to understand that not everybody will be a great sound birder. Not everybody will be a great um, technical buzzard ID birder. Not everyone will be brilliant at separating, you know, the comic terms because that's another dark art as far as I'm concerned. My good friend, John Graham, um, I'm, I'm begging him to get onto our webinars to, to help us along with turns, but it's such a difficult aspect of birding and, and he's got this innate knowledge. I'll never be like that. So it all defines, it's all depending on what you define as being a good birder. But for me, the, the step up to being a better birder was to, to learn the cause and to understand how important they are in, in terms of finding species. Well, let's ask the question, how would you define what a good birder is? I definitely wouldn't define a good birder as someone who has a, an enormous list, because I think that can be misleading. I think um, a list is often a function of, of time and money. And I, I also would just qualify that by saying that there are extremely good birders who've got very big lists, but there's also very good birders who've got very small lists. You you take the, the very localized guides. Um, you go to a, um, a forest patch in, in KZN, you know, the Shawi forest patches and your local guides that you guys have got up there. They are outstanding birders, but they've probably got life lists of 200 species or 300 species. So definitely a good bird is not someone that, that has a big list. I think a good birder is also someone who is able to recognize when they've made a mistake. And I, I see this a lot with, with uh, very good birders that I know. When they make a mistake, they acknowledge it and they, they move on and they learn from it and they they share in why they made a mistake and why they got it wrong. Um, I'm making mistakes all the time. And I think it's important to recognize that. And I think that makes a good birder. I do think learning birdsong, um, I think you, you would struggle to qualify as a good birder if you couldn't go into your local patch and point out bird species that you're hearing. But then it, it comes to, to time in the field. Um, you can't become a good birder overnight. I think I've spent so many hours with the scope looking at waders and I consider myself to be reasonably experienced, but but nothing close to as experienced as someone like Trevor Hoddeck is. He spent multiple numbers of hours with a scope looking at, at at waders on mudflats. So it's time in the field, and and I think those combinations of of factors are are um are what make a good birder. Yeah, you touched on something interesting. Now you spoke about the life list, and oftentimes when when people meet each other, one of the first questions that comes up is, you know, what's your life list on? And that's almost become for many people what the definition of a good birder is. But do you feel at times that possibly that birding life lists are overemphasized at the expense of other aspects of birding? Yeah, I, I think I do to to an extent. Um, I, I think that um, there are. Um, as I said, there are very good birders who who have very short lists because they understand their patch and they know the birds well. I've always um, wanted to grow my list. You know, from when I, I started birding as a kid, you know, it was ticking off all the species on on the pages uh, originally. Now, and then there was Excel lists, and now there's um, Bird Lasser and eBird. Um, so my my intention was always to grow the list and to to reach those milestones. So, and I, I think it's amazing to have those milestones. I, I think um, it's great to to want to seek out more birds. But I, you know, I think it's um, important as a, as a South African birder, I think it's important to seek out our great endemic and localized birds sooner than is it important to, to seek out the rarities. So instead of jumping on a plane and, and twitching, you know, sooty gull, for example, um, I think it's good to, to go to the Northern Cape and, and see a red lark or, or to, to go and traipse around some fanboss and, and find a fanboss button quilt. You know, so those um, those are the things I think are, are more important. I, I've had a very sort of slow progress in my, my 
sub-region list. I, I think I, I hit 700 when I was probably 25, and I, I hit 800 when I was 40. And then I, it, took me, it took me, I think, six years to get to 850. And um, I'm very proud of that number. And um, uh, because I'm so proud of that number, I said, well, that's kind of it. I'm not going to chase birds to add to that number. I'm going to um, accept that that is what I wanted to achieve. And there's still some very silly birds that I need on that list. If you can find me a short-tailed pipit that's very reliable, I might take you up on that. Um, but I, I definitely want to, um, to explore our birds more in, in the natural areas and, and not necessarily twitch things. I will qualify that and say that um, I will twitch a bird every now and again, but it's got to be within very um, restricted boundaries. But I do think that we we miss the whole objective of birding when when you go on a twitch and your single-minded focus is to see that one bird and you ignore everything else that is around you. I often get back from a twitch and I say, gosh, we were looking so hard for that one bird, I didn't even take time to to notice the other stuff. And I always find that's a little bit empty for me, um, particularly when you dip. And I've had... I've had two very particular painful dips, which was um, the white wagtail at Claymont and, and uh, the Eurasian blackcap in a garden in Durbanville. And the, the most painful thing about those dips is both my boys um, got those birds. It was school holidays and good mates of mine took them to see them. But I, I found there was such a fixation on getting the bird for the number and not really going birding that uh, that was the moment I decided that um, I will only twitch things which are, are very very much within the boundaries that um, are closer by. I mean, I'll, I'll go to Stranfontein because it's down the road, but it's unlikely that I'm going to travel too far for, for additions to my sub-region list. The challenge I've had recently is just to think about the fact that there's there's so many birds that are probably in my area that have, have yet to be discovered. I mean, one of my mates, Tyron, went birding um, early, earlier this year and found a corncrake and a bronzewing corsa just literally within my pentad. And, you know, I'm finding just by going out and just doing normal birding, you, I'm, I'm seeing amazing birds. Went a couple of weeks ago, I woke up in the morning, it was pouring with rain. I think about 10 o'clock, hop past 10, the rain stopped. Thought, oh, I'll just take a bit of a drive down. Got two European honey buzzards. And it, it was like a lot more exciting to to find birds that, that I discovered myself as opposed to, you know, chasing after something that somebody else has seen. Not that there's anything wrong with that for somebody else, but I just think there's a lot more value. And I think, you know, chasing after birds is great, but a lot of times we neglect our local patches and we neglect, you know, what is right on our doorstep. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think, um, you know, we were, we recently returned from our, from our holiday on the coast in the Eastern Cape. We, we holiday on, on the Crom River at St. Francis Bay and um, we decided to take a detour back home and spend some time in the Baviance. Um, and, Adam, my, my middle son, and I went birding two mornings ago in this beautiful sort of fig forest gorge in the Babiance. And it's a case of getting um, to a spot where you see a bird fly across the road, you stop the car, you get out of the car, and you just follow the birds. You you see a, a good bird, a lesser honey guide, and we photographed that. And then that moved on to a spotted flycatcher, which is a good bird for the area. And we moved on to that. Then there was a black cuckoo calling, and we chased that down. And then there was a yellow-throated bush sparrow, and we thought, let's photograph that one. And by the end of the morning, we had, we had accumulated an amazing list of, of really good naturally occurring birds. And the morning culminated in finding um, the, the furthest southwestern record of uh, red-throated rhinek. I, I was completely blown away by finding a bird that just I would never have expected. And I'm sure it's a resident bird, but no one's birded there. No one's really seen it before in that, in that region. And to me, that, that was a far more satisfying morning in, in spending time chasing down a rarity. 
and and so that I, I guess if you want to ask me what's my favorite kind of birding, that's an exact example of it. It's where you where you really just are in the environment and you're just seeing what comes and you're recognizing the calls and you're chasing down birds um, because you're hearing good birds calling and, and you're photographing. And that's that's kind of what is a perfect morning of birding for me. And then you spoke about the fact that you've been birding for 40 years. So obviously in the middle of that, um, you've got a family. And how has having a family changed your birding journey? How has, how's, how's your birding evolved since you've, you've uh, since a family's come into the picture? Well, it's, um, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, how, how did you get your kids into birding? And um, I mean, I, I remember about uh, 10 years ago, I was asked to write a series of articles on, on encouraging your, your kids to go birding because I had two birding sons. And um, I think my, my response then was very different to my response now. My response now would be the best chance you have of having birding kids is to have as many kids as you possibly can, because then your chances are much higher that at least one of them will be a birder. So, I mean, Tommy was um, my, my first son that went birding with me, and we had some amazing times together. We twitched the Golden Pippet up, up in Pongola Nature Reserve. I went with my dad and my son, and it became known as the, the, the generation, the three-generation twitch. Um, and what I realized with Tommy is that um, I think he wasn't necessarily craving the birds. He just wanted to spend time with me. So he's now, you know, he's 17 years old and he's, he's got other things in his life. And I've realized that as much as he was my birding companion, then he, he isn't necessarily going to be a, a birder forever. He, he's got an interest, but not a, a very big interest. And then Adam is my, my, my birding son. Um, he, I think, will have a, a lifelong interest. He will come birding with me at any opportunity. He loves the photography. And he's got this innate sense of, of enjoying seeing good birds. He, he's a good birder. He's got good eyes. He's got good ears. And uh, he loves taking great pictures. And then I've got a, um, a son, Jack, who, who has never been interested in birds. And then my daughter at the moment is certainly not interested in birds. So the, the most important thing I can say if you want to encourage your kids to go birding is to try and not force them to do it. So take them on short outings. Make sure you've got plenty of snacks. Um, you might even want to take a, a device along. So when uh, you see a really good bird and you want some, some time to see it, you can give them the device and they can, I don't know, surf a, a YouTube channel or something. But uh, I, I'm being flippant. But I think when, when kids are young, they have a limited attention span. And I, I think it's very hard for them to be out in the field for long periods of time when there's a lot of inactivity. And I think they will be put off if you try and force that upon them. I think the best thing to do is to do it in short bits. And, and as they tend to take on and they enjoy it, then uh, then you can expand it. I mean, I, I was very determined not to take the boys even to West Coast National Park for a full morning until I knew that they could handle it and enjoy it. And um, I mean, Adam now, will he will go birding flat out with me for, for an entire day. But it's only because it was it was a slow, slow process. And and I think it's it's positive affirmation. You don't want them to not enjoy the experience. Yeah, we spoke about having a big life list in that earlier, but I mean, the, the biggest tragedy would be having a massive life list at the expense of your family. And I think that is a great decision that you made, you know, to actually prioritize family overbirding. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's quite interesting because, you know, I've had very recent cause to, to think about twitching and how important a particular bird is on my life list. So we were holidaying in St. Francis Bay and, and the sooty gull was found at uh, Carmouth. And, um, you know... As, as one does, you throw the coordinates into, into Google Maps and, and it popped out five and a half hours drive from St. Francis Bay to Carmouth. Now, for some, some birders, that's an insignificant amount of time. But, you know, I quickly calculated and I said, well, it's five and a half hours there. You know, you probably want to 
give yourself, you know, four or five hours to to try and find the bird or to enjoy it or whatever. And then it's five and a half hours back. Plus there's the curfew with COVID. And I suddenly realized that it, it was going to cost me two days of holiday with my family. And um, for me, that was too big a sacrifice to make. And I think that's what birding and twitching is all about, is how much can you afford to sacrifice in order to get that additional bird? And and I just quickly weighed up the, the, the sacrifice was way too great for, for an additional bird on my life list. And I think some, some of my mates listening to this may be horrified to hear me say that. But um, I, I had uh, two amazing days on holiday with my family, plus probably four or five hours of our own birding. And I, I felt like I had it all rather than just um, having that one additional species on my list. So that's, that's the balance you've got, to, you've got to get right. Yeah, and I think that balance is different for every, everyone else out there, different according, different according to how their marriage works and all those kind of things. I think it's things you have to take into account yourself. But I think, you know, it you know, goes back to the idea we were saying earlier about not, you know, if somebody's lifeless is their priority, you know, celebrate their birding journey as opposed to trying to make their birding journey like your birding journey. And I think there's a whole lot of different ways to do birding. And I think as long as people are enjoying it and they're not hurting the birds, just do it the way that you, you're enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Um one of the hardest things for me is that I'm on an amazing uh, WhatsApp group here in Cape Town. It's all my birding friends. And we have the real spectrum. We've got, um, I mean, Trevor's on, on the group. And then we've got uh, a good mate of mine who I brought into the group who's a, an absolute novice. But he's he's absolutely passionate about the birds that he does see with his, his two daughters who are aged sort of nine and six. So you've got this massive spectrum. But, you know, the, the, the focus is probably a little bit more on the fanatical end. And it's hard to to be receiving these photographs and messages on the WhatsApp group of all these amazing birds that everybody's seeing. And you've always got to take a step back and say, well, everybody has got different circumstances. And and the important thing is that you should respect everybody's circumstances. And I think that's that's the key, um, is is the respect for the different levels of birders and, and the different ends of the spectrum that you sit on. Um, so for me, that's quite important. And I, I, I have to keep reminding myself that that my circumstances are different because I chose them to be different and and you talk about um you know uh, patient wives i've got an incredibly uh, patient wife and as my kids have got older it's been a lot easier for me to go out birding and 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 spend time you know i say going birding with adam it's basically babysitting even though he is 15 years old and he's almost taller than me um but you can i, I can get away with it because um, i'm spending time with my with my kid and um so she she deserves a lot of credit um, because she has put up with a lot over the years for sure so not only are you a great birder, but you also are a great bird photographer. So what equipment do you use and what made you decide to use the setup that you have? Um, I'm currently, thank you for saying I'm a great photographer. I think that's a, a matter of opinion. So I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm currently using um, Canon and um, I have no um, negative comments to make, make about Nikon because I've never used a Nikon or any of the mirrorless cameras because I never tried them. But I'm currently using a DSLR. Um, it's a Canon 1DX Mark II, which I recently bought secondhand from a good mate of mine who, who is definitely a better photographer than me. So I assumed it had everything to do with the camera. And I've sadly figured out that it has nothing to do with the camera. Um, so I use the 1DX Mark II. Um, and then I've got a 500 millimeter F4, also Canon lens. And that, that is an amazing lens. It's quite big and, and bulky. So I've got a 100 um, F5.6 zoom lens which I often take with me on, on field trips where I'm, I'm doing a lot of walking. Um, I have lugged my 500 up um, some Cape Town mountains to look for rock jumpers and, and regretted not taking the smaller camera. Um, but yeah, I think the, that combination has worked very well for me. I, I don't use a tripod. I use uh, handheld stuff. I, 
I find a tripod to be very cumbersome. Um, and um, yeah, I think the key to to uh, photographic su- success is really um, there's a lot to do with the equipment. I think um, the the very good lenses are are quite uh, pricey, but they definitely do make a difference. And it, and it's a it's a cumulative thing over years. You know, I've I've developed my equipment setup over over some time. I started with very basic stuff many years ago, and I've built up to to get myself a setup that I think um, is pretty much. Um, as 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 good as I'd like it to be at, at the moment. I think if you ask most bird photographers why they use the setup they use, except unless you have a lot of money, it's normally because of the budget you had available. That's purely why I use what I've got. Absolutely. I think um, budget is the only limiting factor when it comes to bird photography. I think there are some some amazing lenses out there, but they just it's eye-watering how much they cost these days. And then in terms of those who are listening that would that want to grow as bird photographers, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, we did a, we did a range of, um, well, we did a series of, of webinars on bird photography. But I mean, if I had to put it in a, in a very um, tight nutshell, I mean, there's some, some uh, key pointers. I think, you know, try to get as close to the bird as possible without disturbing it. And I think that's a key factor. Um, any bird photography that disturbs birds too much is, is not good. Um, but the closer you are to a bird, um, the sharper your image is going to be. And sharpness is, is really a key factor in, in good photographs. Um, and, and I think it means um, you've got to be patient. You've got to spend time in the field and you've got to um, predict bird behavior in order to get those close shots. I, I think a, a very important factor is getting eye level with the bird. Um, so if, you, if you're photographing birds um, in the canopy, they never look great if you're getting the bum of the bird. Um, and if you're photographing very much down on a bird, it, it also doesn't um, give you a good perspective. Sometimes there's some great raptor shots. Uh, you know, the Vero's eagles at, at Walter Sisulu, there's some amazing shots of those overhead. So that's a slight exception. Light is the most important thing, I think. I always try and get the light directly behind me because I think you get the, the best color effects. And obviously, early morning light is best. But then again, if you're a little bit more arty, you can get some backlit photographs, which look amazing. Adam loves to take backlit photographs. Um, so we always have to stop when we're birding and he takes photographs of, of birds that are backlit. And, and cropping, for me, is a, a key factor when you're processing. I think, I think uh, everyone wants uh, very nice, sharp images, but when you, when you get too proud of your, 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 your um, feather clarity, uh, you want to crop too much. And I think that sometimes takes the bird out of the surroundings you photographed it in. There's nothing better than having nice habitat around the bird in order to show you where you, where you took the picture. So those are, I mean, look, there's... There's um, so many photographic tips one could go through, but those are, I would say, my, my, my brief short ones and, and the key ones that I've found have helped me over the years. So, so you touched on the, the webinars that you and David Winter were running. What was always amazing about these webinars was the content was always of the highest quality. I learned so much from them. But on top of that all, they were always free. So what was the goal of these webinars and will we see some more in the near future? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, we joked last year during during COVID. Uh, Dave and I joked that we were we were ahead of our time because Dave came to me about two years ago. It's almost exactly two years ago, so it was kind of February March, uh, 2019, and he said to me he's really keen to start um, these birding webinars. And I, I said to him, I don't know what that word means. I don't know what a webinar is. Um, and he he introduced me to Zoom, and he said, um, so I said, is it like a podcast? He says, no, it's not like a podcast. It's sort of um, it's not pre-recorded it's live and you invite people to watch so um, we launched our first one um, on um, buzzard id in july 2019 and i think we had um, 30 people watching it um, which we thought was a great number um, and then it, it kind of grew during 2019 and we we had some um, great content from you know 
birders like uh, Trevor and, and my good mate Dom Rollinson and Pete Ryan. And the objective was always to make it free. I think um, we, we know that we're, we're not um, in the birding profession. We don't intend to make money out of birding. So we, we wanted to do it because we enjoyed it and we wanted to put the content out there. And we also always wanted to make sure that we did it with a high uh, level of content quality. And, and so what happened last year with COVID, and particularly towards the latter end of the year, we found that we would be putting a webinar out and there would be four or five other competing webinars in the same week and sometimes one or two competing webinars on the same night. And we realized that it just was, there was too much content. Everybody was was using web, um, Zoom and, and um, our competitive advantage had been lost. And Dave said to me, you know, let's not, I kept on saying to him, Dave, let's put Let's put more more content out there. People are you know sitting at home. They've got nothing else to do. They can't go birding. And he said, "Don't force the content. Let's make sure we we always have a high quality um, product that we put out there." And I hope we've achieved that. I think um, we we lost momentum towards the end of the year, but but on purpose. We knew that there was just too much competition out there, and I think people had uh, webinar fatigue. We definitely will be doing more um, better birding webinars. Just because we've been quiet for a while doesn't mean that we've gone away. Um, and we are, we're certainly looking at um, some, some nice topics. I love the experiential stuff and Dave loves the technical ID stuff. And that makes for a very good uh, balance. Um, I'd love to talk about people and their birding experiences. And Dave loves to pick apart, you know, Exhibitor ID and Buzzard ID and, and Wader stuff. So um, you can look forward to, to a lot of stuff in the future. Um, we won't be stopping. It's just a case of, of finding the right, um, the right topics and, and giving people what they think is valuable. And for those who have missed the webinars, they're all, all on YouTube, if I, if I understand correctly. Yes, they're all recorded on YouTube. It's under our um, Better Birding YouTube channel. So you just search Better Birding under YouTube. And I think we've got about uh, 15 YouTube videos posted, um, starting with the um, slightly um, cringy first one that we ran when my Wi-Fi dropped and we were tethered to Dave's hotspot on his phone, where we really battled with the, the technology. Um, to to the latter ones, which were we finished off with the pelagic birding series with my good mate Dom, and I think people um, will find those extremely valuable um, if we ever get onto a ship for flock 2022. So one thing is, as I've run these uh, the, the podcast over the last year or so, I've got to chat to some of the the best birders in the country, and I've learned a heck of a lot. And I know that you're an experienced birder, but you know by having these birders like Trevor and the different guys you've had on the show, Don Rollinson, that the guys you've had on the show, what are some of the things that you've learned by chatting to some of these guests? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. I um, I think every every birder we've we've had on on the Better Birding webinars is has been a specialist in their particular field. And then obviously someone like Trevor is, is a specialist more than in just one field. He's a seabird expert as well as a wader expert. And, and um, you know, he's obviously the most experienced um, sub-region lister. So he's traveled, um, you know, more than most uh, for the birds that he's seen. Um, but w- what I found is that, that birding is such a broad and, and diverse pastime that it requires a degree of um, specialization. So, so not, not everyone is going to be as knowledgeable in, in every sphere as, as somebody else. So it's, it's important, and, and I've learned this. I mean, you know, Dom Rollinson uh, is a top, top seabird expert, and, and he'll acknowledge when he's out of his depth on, on other um, birding topics. Um, so I think that's a, that's a key thing I've learned, is that, and, and I said it earlier in, in this discussion, is that 
the great thing about great birders is that they are able to acknowledge when when they've made a mistake and they 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 don't know exactly what it is that they've seen or or um, trying to see. Um, so I, I think that's one thing. Um, and and I, I guess the other thing is it's amazing how how seriously people take birding. And I think that's um, one of the things that has has amazed me. Just you know, last year we did the the 150k challenge here in Cape Town, and um, you know it, it was crazy to see the lengths that all my birding mates went to in order to to grow that list. Um, some of the most bizarre behaviour I think I've ever seen, um, and it just it just shows how excited and excitable people get about something that that may to a non-birder seem so inane. And, and that's a great thing. It's, it's almost like the secret code. You know, we, we seem to have the secret code that no one else understands and, and we'll eventually re- reveal it to the greater world, but um, we're keeping it a secret at the moment. Otherwise, uh, there'll be no space for us. So you spoke about the challenges that people go do and the, and the extent that they go to, you know, to grow their numbers for their year lists. And you've also spoken a little bit earlier about how you're not doing the whole twitching thing and that. So Somebody who's listening now who wants to grow the year list, I mean, right at the beginning of 2021, what practical advice would you give to those that want to grow the year list for 2021? Yeah, I think the most important to do, thing to do when, you, when you're approaching a year list is to, to set your objective. So, um, I mean, if, you, if you're embarking on a big year and you want to, to hit 800, you, you need to put in a lot of time and effort and plan it. Um, whereas if your objectives are really just to, to see a few lifers, um, Try and identify um, the areas in, in the country that will give you that highest return. So I think it's a case of using the data that we have at our fingertips on, on SABAT2 to find out where, where birds are in the country that you, you haven't yet seen um, and explore different and, and new areas. I think, um, you know, people have, you know, with Bird Lasser and with eBird and, and with these challenges, they've, they've embarked on these, these annual lists. And, and I think it's great because... What we found last year with um, with our 150k challenge is there were a lot more birds seen because there were a lot more birders doing it. Um, and I think um, if you want to see more birds, encourage your mates to join you. So if you want to if you want to see more birds in your 150 area or your 100 area, whatever it is, uh, rev them up and say, "Well, I'll challenge you," because then there will be more people out there, um, and there definitely will be more birds found. So I think that's one way to do it. And I think don't don't necessarily get too fixated on on achieving a certain number. But um, try and visit areas that you've never been to before and bird patches that you don't know well um, and get out and, and experience um, stuff that, that you've never seen before. I think that's the key. I think one of the things also, it's a great thing, and we, I, we didn't really put this into the questions we we're going to chat about, but how atlasing also grows your list. Because, you know, since I started atlasing, you're a lot more deliberate about seeing, recording every single bird that you see. And what I find is that you see, you actually tend to see a lot more. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been atlasing for, uh, I mean, I was a, a very early adopter. Uh, I think I've been atlasing probably from the first month that it was launched. Um, I used to get a lot of abuse because we never had uh, bird lasser. Um, and so I had a little um, uh, sound recorder, one of those M- MP3 sound recorders, a tiny little thing. It was called a clip or something like that. And, and um, I'd have it attached to my, my birding peak. And I'd be um, sort of in, in a particular pentad, which I'd have to use my GPS coordinates in order to make sure I was in the right pentad. We didn't have, as I say, bird dust to show us where the boundaries were. And I'd uh, click and record um, the species that I saw. And then uh, obviously when I got back to my computer, I'd add them to the, the manual list that you had to capture. But I, I, I'm an absolutely fanatical atlas. I, I love the, the, the protocol. 
um, it forces you to to go deep into an area because you know two hours is a is a good amount of time. But I, I love um, seeing what new birds I can find in a pentad. There's nothing better than finding a new bird for a pentad, particularly ones that have been very well atlased. This red-throated rhinoc that we saw two days ago, um, it certainly is a new bird for the pentad, and and you know you get your out of range form and you enjoy filling it in, particularly when you've got a photograph. But it's um, atlasing has has definitely changed birding, and I think bird lasser is an, an amazing product and. And long may it continue. I know that um, there's, there's appeals for funding, and I, I hope that the project does continue because I think birders will be lost without it. What's your local pentad list on? So I live in the, uh, the what we call the Newlands slash Kirstenbosch pentad, and it, um, it covers a bit of the mountain, and we've got the, 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 the um, Black River, which is a bit of a wetland. And um, a year ago, uh, two years ago, a good ma- a Dom, my good mate Dom, we, we challenged ourselves to break a record that was held by Dave Winter. And um, we, we hit it very hard and I birded flat out for five days and we recorded 134 species in the five-day protocol period. Yeah. And, and that was scraping every single bird we could possibly find. And we actually competed against one another. We ended up on exactly the same number. Um, we shared a little bit of gen, but it wasn't too, it wasn't too benevolent. We, we made sure that we had to work for some birds and I told Dom on the very last night that I got a tambourine dove on the mountain and he was horrified that I hadn't told him where it was. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think my, my number on, on that pentad is probably about 170. But our, the, the real pentad that we, we target here in Cape Town is the Strunfantine pentad, the northern one, because that's got quite a nice diverse, um, a diverse amount of birds and often a lot of rarities. So we, we hit that one hard. And I think my number for that is just over 200. So um yeah, I, I love the atlasing and I, I love the record keeping and, and the, the record breaking. That's a lot of fun too. And have you set yourself any goals for 2021? I know you're not doing you're not doing the twitching that, but have you set any goals? I know for myself, my goal is um, Sapphire Coast is the tourism area we're in. And I want to, I think the highest listed record using bird lasso was 238. So I'm hoping to try break the 250 mark for the first time. So that's my, that's my personal goal. Yeah, I think I think goals are great. I mean, I, I've, I, I mean, those are big numbers. Uh, we don't have the diversity here that you guys have got. I think um, you know the challenge. I did the challenge as seriously as I could, given you know sort of uh, um, some of the constraints. And 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 I, I think we're all relieved that we're not doing the challenge this year. We don't have Trevor um, uh, reminding us all the time how far we are behind um, each one of our mates. But I think um, I, I was giving some thought to my challenges this year, and I, I think uh, the Strunfontein area I want to spend a bit of time there and actually I think after this interview I might jump in my car and head down there but I also I had a thought of trying to trying to tick all the locks of South Africa um, in a calendar year and and I thought that sounded like quite an appealing thing because that'll take you right across the countryside I have I have seen all the locks but uh, I, I need to photograph a few of them and I thought that would be a great way because locks are you know there's so many endemic locks that we have and and it's a, it's a great advert for South African birding. And I thought that would be quite a nice objective to set, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to travel that much this year. So it's probably bad that I've verbalized it, but it is something that I have thought about. So maybe not this year, but uh, in a year in the future, I might do something like that. And then just the last question, um, you've had the opportunity to, to do some birding in some amazing places around the world. What have been some of the highlights? Sure. I was hoping you weren't going to leave that section of the talk out because, um, well, the, the interview out, because I, I'm so passionate about um uh, birding further afield. I think um, we as South African birders have got a slightly uh, inward focus, but there are just some amazing places to go birding. And, and I think some of them are very expensive. I think that's true, but there are some very accessible ones. So I'll, I'll quickly mention the three birding destinations I've, I've had the opportunity to travel 
to. My first um, you know, specific birding trip was to Panama, uh, which would sound like a, an odd place to go, but it's it's uh, sort of got a, an amazing collection of neotropical bird families and, and bird species, and to see hummingbirds and tanagers and you know the wood creepers and jacamars and tinamous, it, it just is mind blowing. It's not a species, a huge species count, but the absolute highlight in that trip was seeing um, a male and female harpy eagle on a nest in uh, the the deepest, darkest, most remote corner of Panama in an area called the Darien Province, which is right on the Colombian border. And uh, the travel to get there was boats and taxis and and hikes through you know lots of mal- uh, not malaria mosquito infested forests. So that was that was one of my top birding experiences of my life. And then um, uh, my wife Jean and I we did a, a trip to see the gorillas in Uganda, and uh, I made sure that we did a lot of birding. And um, that was about two years ago, and we we had the opportunity to see shubal and green breasted pitta in in Chibali forest. Things like um, African green broadbill and great blue terracos. So that was another amazing experience. And I think Uganda is way more accessible than you really think. It's a four-hour flight, and then you can be birding in Entebbe Botanical Gardens within an hour of landing. And then the, the bucket list trip for me, um, which I, I had the opportunity to do last year, was um, to Peru. Um, my good mate Garrett Skeet. I think most people will know Garrett. He's he runs the the rare bird reporting while Trevor's away and he does a great job doing that. And he's a passionate and fanatical world birder as well. And we, we did a three week trip to Peru um, in the, in the South traveling from Lima um, through to Cusco and then into the Amazon basin. And, you know, in a, in a space of three weeks, we saw 650 bird species and just absolutely mind blowing the diversity in a country that has almost 1800 bird species. So, you know, that, that, um, is something that, uh, I mean, I, I just got so much out of that trip. You know, birds like diadine sandpiper plover in the, in the high-altitude bogs and, and Inca tern on the Lima coastline, Andean cocks of the rock in the in the mist, belt, mist forests, the cloud forests, and then in the Amazon, birds like Hoetzin. These are things that I dreamed of seeing from when I was a, a kid paging through bird books, and I, I got the opportunity to do it. And, and now that it's done, you'd think that it was uh, something ticked off and not needing to be revisited, but... I can't wait to get back on an aeroplane and travel to to some amazing countries, but I think we're all a little bit restricted at the moment, so time might have to uh, pass a little bit before I get out there again. So those are those are just some very quick brushstrokes of some amazing international birding that I've had the opportunity to do. Oh, Mark, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. I'm really hoping we can do this again. I know we've we've chatted on the phone. I think we've had like long conversations and there's so much more that I'd love to chat about. I just think you're someone who's made a huge impact in South African birding. And I just want to, I'm looking forward to even after this going and doing some birding. So thanks for the chat. It's always great to chat to you. Thanks very much for having me, um, Adam. And, and I agree, we, we haven't even scratched the surface. And if ever you need me to talk about something bird related, um, please give me a shot and, and you'll, you'll find it hard to get me to stop. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head over to our website www.thebirdinglife.com and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website, including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders, and exciting birds out there. Do not forget to follow The Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. We really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. 
be sure to check out Birdlasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation. As well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.